The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Border Patrol agents enjoy great pay, outstanding federal benefits, and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives for newly appointed agents. If you are looking for a way to serve something greater than yourself, consider the United States Border Patrol. Learn more online at cbp.gov careers usbp. That's cbp.gov careers usbp. This is the American Veteran Show. Proud to finally say these two words. Welcome home. Dedicated to those who have worn the uniform. Tremendous national asset. Dedicated to our active duty men and women. They came not as conquerors, but as liberators. Dedicated to presenting issues, topics, and interviews highlighting their commitment to our country. I want to thank the courageous men and women who've served their country in uniform. Less than 1% population of our country chooses to serve our country in the military and the other 99% of us we owe them online at americanveteranshow.com here's Stephen Tubbs Welcome to this week's edition of the American Veteran Show. Sure appreciate your time on this Super Bowl Sunday. We've got a great show ahead. Watch the game a bit later, but glad you're with us as it's such an important time in global politics. It's, of course, just unbelievable to watch what the Russians are doing and and Vladimir Putin with easily more than 120,000 Russian troops and materiel on the border with Ukraine. Now, as we record our program this Sunday, well, we've heard and we'll bring you the latest from the National Security Advisor from the White House. We'll hear that. Uh, The president talked with NBC's Lester Holt late last week. We'll get you up to speed. And, of course, on our regular show, we will have uh, any kind of latest information or breaking news coming up. Could not do this program without our presenting sponsor, Attorney John Boson at Boson Law, B-O-E-S-E-N, BosonLaw.com, fighting on behalf of veterans every single day. Their number is easy, 303-999-9999. Coming up, we'll give you the latest over the last few days between Russia and Ukraine and, of course, the Seemingly almost inevitable United States involvement, and may that not include one boot on the ground from our men and women in the military right now. Coming up next segment and the segment after, on Friday, we had uh, our military analyst, one of two, Mike Lyons is the other terrific one, but uh, former United States Army colonel, retired Jeff McCausland. He was in Denver and uh, doing a book signing for his book, Battle Tested. That's segments two and three of the program. And we'll wrap things up in our final segment together this Sunday with a look back from a 60 Minutes piece that uh, was just a couple of weeks ago on the dangers of military vehicles, specifically Humvees and equipment used at least up till they stopped using them uh, in the United States Marine Corps. We will have that as we wrap up. First, though, this from CBS News late last week. The president's national security advisor says the U.S. has not concluded that Russia will invade Ukraine. I'm only standing here to say that the risk is now high enough and the threat is immediate enough that prudence demands that it is the time to leave now. Jake Sullivan says an attack by Russia on its neighbor could begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks, followed by a ground invasion. If you stay, you are assuming risk. He says in the event of an invasion, Americans would have no prospect of counting on U.S. military help to get out. 
Stephen Portnoy, CBS News, the White House. We'll have more and the greater context, I guess, with Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, straight ahead in this segment. Late last week, as mentioned, Lester Holt, NBC News, talked with the president. I'm hoping that if, in fact, he's foolish enough to go in, he's smart enough not to, in fact, do anything that would negatively impact on American citizens. Have you you told him that? Yes. You've you've told him that that, Americans will be a line that they can't cross? I didn't have to tell him that. I've spoken about that. He knows that. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit. uh, Look, that's why what I've asked is American citizens should leave, should leave now. We're dealing with one of the largest armies in the world. This is a very different situation and things could go crazy quickly. The president with Lester Holt, NBC News, just a couple of days ago. Coming up, we'll hear from the National Security Advisor. And then just a reminder, as far as, well, what could the casualties be? How about those actually, forget casualties, meaning injured or killed. Our military analyst and guest coming up for the next two segments, uh, Jeff McCausland. It's stunning to hear his numbers. And he said when I first had him on last week on the regular program, you know, I'm really concerned. Tell me, should I be? And he says, well, you're not overly concerned. So we'll hear from him coming up. Jake Sullivan, as mentioned, from the White House, uh, about five minutes of his comments. And um, boy, it's the message. Get out if you're an American in Ukraine and get out now. We need to see signs of Russian escalation, including new forces arriving at the Ukrainian border. As we've said before, we are in the window when an invasion could begin at any time, should Vladimir Putin decide to order it. I will not comment on the details of our intelligence information, but I do want to be clear. It could begin during the Olympics, uh, despite a lot of speculation uh, that it would only happen after the Olympics. We are also ready to respond decisively alongside those allies and partners should Russia choose to take military action. Our response would include severe economic sanctions with similar packages imposed by the European Union, the United Kingdom, Canada, and other countries. It would also include changes to NATO and American force posture along the eastern flank of NATO, and it would include continued support to Ukraine. The president held a secure video uh, conference today with key allies and partners to coordinate our approach to this crisis. The participants were the UK, France, Germany, Italy, Canada, Poland, Romania, the Secretary General of NATO, and the presidents of the European Union. We have achieved a remarkable level of unity and common purpose from the broad strategy down to the technical details. If Russia proceeds, its long-term power and influence will be diminished, not enhanced by an invasion. It will face a more determined transatlantic community. It will have to make more concessions to China. It will face massive pressure on its economy and export controls that will erode its defense industrial base, and it will face a wave of condemnation from around the world. If, on the other hand, Russia truly seeks a diplomatic outcome, it should not only say so, it should pursue that diplomatic outcome. We are prepared to do that. We have put concrete proposals on the table. They are now out there for the world to see. We're prepared to engage on them and to discuss the principles and parameters of European security with our European partners and with Russia. Whatever happens next, the West is more united than it's been in years. NATO has been strengthened. 
The alliance is more cohesive, more purposeful, more dynamic than at any time in recent memory. In terms of immediate next steps, President Biden and his team will remain in close contact with our allies and partners to coordinate both on the potential for diplomacy and on any response that is necessary should Putin decide to order military action. Any American in Ukraine should leave as soon as possible and in any event in the next 24 to 48 hours. We obviously cannot predict the future. We don't know exactly what is going to happen, but the risk is now high enough and the threat is now immediate enough that this is what prudence demands. If you stay, you are assuming risk with no guarantee that there will be any other opportunity to leave and there no prospect of a U.S. military evacuation in the event of a Russian invasion. If a Russian attack on Ukraine proceeds, it is likely to begin with aerial bombing and missile attacks that could obviously kill civilians without regard to their nationality. A subsequent ground invasion would involve the onslaught of a massive force. With virtually no notice, communications to arrange a departure could be severed and commercial transit halted. No one would be able to count on air or rail or road departures once military action got underway. Now again, I'm not standing here and saying what is going to happen or not happen. I'm only standing here to say that the risk is now high enough and the threat is immediate enough that prudence demands that it is the time to leave now. While commercial options and commercial rail and air service exist while the roads are open. The president will not be putting the lives of our men and women in uniform at risk by sending them into a war zone to rescue people who could have left now but chose not to. Jake Sullivan, National Security Advisor from the White House just a couple of days ago on Friday. If I may, editorially speaking, give you this. Let's not forget that there are still Americans who were stranded and remain stranded in Afghanistan. May we see nothing like this in Ukraine. We are just getting started on the American Veteran Show. Coming up, Jeff McCausland for the next two segments and his insight. He's going to teach you, going to teach all of us, and his resume impeccable. We'll talk about that straight ahead. Glad you're with us. Staff and Tubbs with you. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. American Veteran Show. Here's Stephan Tubbs. Welcome back to the program and thank you so much. And uh, of course, as of record time, what we brought you as the latest in our first segment, realize, and I know you understand this, uh, you know, things can change and it's almost now minute by minute, if not hour by hour, certainly day by day, what we are witnessing with Russia and Ukraine may, may cooler heads prevail. Just a couple of days ago on the regular program, you want to talk about a very good, timely interview. Just so happens that one of the great military analysts that we consult was right here in town promoting his new book, and we salute him, United States Army Colonel, retired, Jeff McCausland, CBS News military analyst. He's been on with us on this program and the regular show. His resume certainly is impressive. Okay, well, I'll try to be quick. Uh, you talked about a lot of it. Graduated the Military Academy at West Point, uh, Field Artillery. 
I spent a lot of time in Europe during the Cold War. I spent some time teaching in the Military Academy at West Point. Uh, back, I worked in the Pentagon on arms control issues and European security. Back in Europe, commanded a battalion and took that battalion from Germany to Saudi Arabia for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we were part of the lead attack force into Iraq with the 7th U.S. Corps uh, during that particular conflict. <clears throat> Ended up in Kuwait and then back into Iraq and then back home. Uh, returned from that and was uh, reassigned back to be on the member of the faculty at the United States Army War College, where we trained strategic leaders, and subsequently became the dean of academics at the War College. Along the way, I got dragged out of the, of the uh, uh, War College, proving that old adage, no good turn goes unpunished, and was dragged down and put on the National Security Council staff in the White House, and I was there for the Kosovo crisis, which in many ways was the last, I would argue, great crisis that we had uh, in Europe back in 1999. I uh, spent time on the, working in the White House. Uh, retired from the Army in 2002, and oddly enough, accepted a position as the chair of leadership education at the Naval Academy. So having spent all these years with soldiers, now I got to go live with sailors and Marines with young midshipmen, which is enormous fun. Uh, and then left, left there after a couple of years and was asked to uh, set up a leadership institute at Dickinson College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I still am to this day. And along the way as well, spent some time teaching in the Graduate School of International Affairs at Penn State University, uh, as well as um, teaching in the law school, teaching leadership courses in the law school. And as we said in the last hour, since 2003, I've been a national security consultant for CBS News. And in that regard, was back in Iraq about five times, spent some time in Afghanistan, made two trips to picturesque Guantanamo, which is not picturesque, uh, and I've been doing that for the last 19 years. Uh, translation. He knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and uh, listen, I'll tell you, uh, I want to just hit you with the, a very simple question, and that would be from your military experience. You've, you've been there, done that, boots on the ground. You've taught about it. You are an author. How concerned should we be right now with what is going on between Russia and Ukraine? Well, very concerned. I think you mentioned at the top, you know, David's assessment that the forces were in place. Uh, what I've seen is estimates that he needs about 110 Italian tactical groups. That's a function of which, how far an invasion he goes. Is it all of the Ukraine? Is it just the Dnieper River in Kiev, or is it a more limited? So that number of requirement might might vary. Uh, but he also, I think, has now created options because as of yesterday, this major exercise began in Belarus, thirty thousand troops, and many people think that might be a mask to invade Ukraine from the north, from Belarus, and you might have Belarusian troops participating in that invasion as well. And at the same time, we've seen him expand the forces he has in Crimea and the naval forces that are uh, operating in both the Sea of Azov and the Black Sea. There are estimates that he may have soon up to 13 amphibious landing ships and could land up to a brigade plus of Marines uh, right there on the beaches. So this gives him the option of hitting the Ukraine from three directions or at least threatening to do that, forcing the Ukrainians to disperse their forces. And then finally, as you watch these forces grow, there has been no pause ever since this began. It's been a steady filling out of the forces and the logistical tail, which I look at, uh, which is the ammo, the water, the fuel, the hospital, the blood supplies, all that stuff falling into place uh, for an invasion. And now we see forces also moving closer to the border. I would almost say you could say they're moving from what we would call marshalling areas to forward assembly areas. And we see Russian soldiers now living in tents, not terribly far from the border. Uh, and you can't keep them in that position very long. 
because it's pretty difficult for them. Morale starts to suffer. Operational readiness starts to suffer. And I always like that quote from Talleyrand, who was a foreign minister in France back in the 19th century, who once said, the one thing you can't do with bayonets is sit on them. So having displayed all this force, you're coming to a point where you've got to do something or back down. We cannot maintain this level of force posture at this point indefinitely. That can't occur. Colonel Jeff McCausland, United States Army, retired. You heard his incredible resume. If you and I were having a beer, which I wish kind of we were at this point, but we are not currently, but um, I would ask you probably in this way, Jeff, what the hell is Putin's problem? You answer. Well, his problem is that if you go back to 2004, uh, Vladimir Putin said in a treatise he wrote then, and he was president of the Russian Federation, that the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Not only you, Stefan, but I thought World War I was pretty awful, and the Russians lost six million in World War II. Yes, sir. Okay? But he thinks the end of the Soviet Union was the most uh, terrible thing. And I think he may well believe that, much as we might shrug that off. So, as a consequence, since then, what has he tried to do? Well, he's tried to do three things, I think. One is, as he can, undermine the credibility of the United States and liberal democracy. Number two, drive fissures between the United States and its NATO allies, creating chaos, <clears throat> reduce the credibility of NATO. Number three, reassert some control, not necessarily into one country, but some control over those countries that were part of the Soviet Union, which have large Russian-speaking populations, like Belarus, Ukraine. Uh, Armenia, perhaps, the Baltic republics, uh, places like that. And so when the, then what has he done? Well, of course, he's interfered in our elections. He interfered in European elections. He interfered in the Brexit vote. He had dissidents uh, killed in the U.K. using nerve gas. He invaded Georgia in 2008 and took two provinces still occupied by Russian troops. And in 2014, he invades the Ukraine uh, and occupies Crimea, and also foments this rebellion in the eastern portion, two provinces, the eastern portion of Ukraine, which has been gone going since 2014, and 14,000 Ukrainians have died in the fighting since 2014. For a Ukrainian, it's not, are we going to be invaded? We've already been invaded. Is, this going to, is there going to be an expansion of that invasion? You've probably seen the stories over the last couple of weeks that are just... Uh, it just blows me away that we're in 2022. You've got, there was an Associated Press story that I just can't get out of my head where they focused on at least three individuals, uh, and I believe two of them were female. One was a woman who teaches uh, table tennis, and yet uh, on her in her spare time, she's taking, you know, defense training, and she's got these weapons. And uh, there was a guy that, I, I don't know if he owned a bowling alley or what, but it's just that kind of stuff. The Ukrainian people, they're not going to roll over, are they? No, they're not going to roll over. But, but this also, I think, is part of, uh, of Putin's calculation. You know, in 2008, at a NATO summit, the United States, George W. Bush, and the NATO allies would say, we will offer membership in NATO to Georgia and Ukraine at some time in the future, yet unspecified, certainly not imminent even to this day. Putin was at that particular summit and would say to Bush privately, you know, George, Ukraine is not really a country. It's not really a country always been part of Russia. That's where the culture is. And he's written about that frequently. But one of the things that may motivate him right now, back to your point about them becoming more Ukrainian, is for 30 years now, since 1991, Ukraine has been independent. Putin knows the following, and he has not been able to undermine that. Putin knows the following, I would argue. Every single day, an elderly person dies in Ukraine. That person probably speaks Russian as well as Ukrainian. They might even hearken back with some fondness to the days of the Soviet Union. That same day, 
A baby is born in Ukraine. That baby will never learn to speak Russian. Their second language will be English, German, French, or Italian. So demographically, Putin knows there's fewer Russian newspapers, there's fewer Russian being taught in schools. The whole attitude of this population is westward and not eastward. So if I don't do something pretty soon, the, the winds of time are running against me. CBS News military analyst, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. He visited us just a couple of days ago on the regular program. We'll continue and bring you more from our interview coming up next. This is the American Veteran Show, AmericanVeteranShow.com. back to the American Veteran Show. We continue now with Stefan Tubbs. We continue our conversation from just a couple of days ago we had with one of our favorites, military analyst with CBS News, retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland. As you've heard, his resume is impeccable and how lucky for us in a very unfortunate global situation that we could pick the brain of the colonel and the military analyst. And, of course, we talked about his book as well, but we continue to watch what's going on so many thousands of miles away. We pick up our conversation with Colonel McCausland. You know, history doesn't repeat itself, but I think it rhymes. So anybody thinks that Mr. Putin was satisfied with a small price, a small slice of the Ukraine and, and go about his business, just doesn't understand how this works. And furthermore, at the end of the Second World War, we as an international community, the U.N. and as sovereign countries, basically embraced certain principles. One was that territory was not going to change based on the application of military power. We don't we don't live in the law of the jungle where the strong do anything that they want to do and the weak try to do the best they can. That's not the world we want to live in. And so certainly if you allow this to occur, not only do you incur Russia, but you incur other people that this we can get away with this. The one country I would argue in many ways that's watching this as closely as they can are our friends in Beijing, or in fact the Chinese. <clears throat> now, I'm not predicting a simultaneous invasion of Taiwan. Don't give me, no, no, no. But they're looking at this. How does the West react to an invasion to take over a runaway province, which is kind of what they would call it, called the Ukraine? Because they talk about Taiwan as a runaway province. So if the West doesn't react pretty strongly, well... This means that, you know, we're kind of getting a green light, and those rules of the game have, in fact, changed. What a pickle. Dang, Nabbit, what a pickle. And I know that's uh, putting it lightly. Uh, talk about real quick. Uh, <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me see how many I could – okay, I could think of water systems. I could think of the financial system and banking, uh, certainly communications, whether it's cell phone or uh, right down to just we don't have any more Internet. I mean, aren't those – things, you know, well within the capability of at least trying to disrupt this country here domestically. Yeah, we have to understand that we live in the 21st century, and we now have really five domains of warfare. The traditional three, air, land, and sea. And now we have two other domains, and that is space and cyber. Okay? And then you have the possibility of so-called vertical escalation. As we were talking a moment ago, an American soldier is killed by a Russian soldier when the possibility of vertical escalation in the military sphere goes up dramatically. But you have the possibility now of horizontal escalation. 
and your and your comp your don't ever forget I say this in my book Battle Tested. Don't forget the enemy gets a vote on your strategy. They get a vote. You do X, they get to do Y. So let's say the Russians invade. Let's say we impose these massive sanctions on the Russians. And they decide, we're, we're going to respond, but we're going to do it horizontally. And as you said, suddenly there are uh, hacking things like the Colonial Pipeline, which was pretty sure was the Russians, uh, or banking systems, or uh, uh, suddenly satellites are blinded and your Google Maps and your car quits working. All those things in the current environment are certainly possible. And then, of course, there's the energy sector. One thing the Europeans worry about is the, that the Russians would shut off the flow of natural gas to Europe. About 35% of German gas, natural gas, comes from the Russian Federation. So they worry about a dramatic increase almost overnight in natural gas prices. Well, we don't live immune to that. And I think we looked today and said the price of oil in the spot market yep. went up. And I guarantee you, if they invade, then you're going to see a rising price on that, which is going to translate to effects on every person driving their car on the road right now in Denver. Now, that being said, Stephen, we need to make sure the listeners understand. What you and I are talking about is what could happen if things start to escalate. We're not talking about what will happen. I don't want to, you know, inexplicably or unnecessarily frighten people. But at the same time, we owe it to them, I think, to talk about just how serious this is. This is a loaded question. So simple yet. (laughs) Uh, What do you, retired Army colonel with your impeccable resume, what do you see happening based on maybe history and your experience? What happens in the days, hours, days, weeks, months to come? Well, you know, Yogi Berra says it's hard to predict anything, especially the future. Um, what I what I perceive happening is I would say because based on the amount of forces he has now put in place, and that continues to grow, it's pretty difficult for me to see a diplomatic off ramp which would allow him to pull those forces back and go back to Moscow and and tell the oligarchs that surround him. I was just kidding, but look what we got. Okay, it's not totally impossible. There's a thing called the Mintz process which might assuage some of their anxieties and cause them to do an off-ramp. So I'm at about a 60-40 probability or 70-30 probability that some form of an invasion will occur. That being said, there are sort of, I've seen nine different options. I'll just say for simplicity, there are three options. Option number one, the big option. We're going to occupy the entire country. Okay? It's as big as Texas. There are 40 million people in it. You got about 120,000 troops. You can defeat the Ukrainian military. You don't have enough troops to occupy it because there's liable to be an insurgency. Well, a more limited invasion. Well, you can go as far as the Dnieper River, capture Kiev, put in a puppet government. You might be able to do that. Okay, well, that's going to be a pretty lot of fighting. Some estimates are 50,000 Ukrainians could die. You could lose 10,000 Russian troops. Ukrainians could lose as many or more, and there would be serious consequences. Or you could do a limited option. As far as timing, how soon? Well, I look at the 20th of February as a very important day because two things are scheduled to happen on the 20th of February. One, the exercises that have begun in in the Belarus are supposed to end. And the Russians have said, when those exercises end, we are pulling the troops out. Okay, do they do that or not? And number two, the 20th of February, coincidentally, is the last day of the Olympics. And there is some logic to say, Mr. Putin, doesn't want this to happen before the end of the Olympics because the last thing he wants to do is alienate the Chinese, who he will need the day after as uh, European and American nations apply economic sanctions. 
you like what you've heard, you're you're intrigued as I am, I hope you certainly are, you can see this man in person in just about 90 minutes at Littleton's Tattered Cover, 6 o'clock tonight, the exact address, 301 South Santa Fe in Littleton. Uh, as if you don't have anything else to do, you've written many books, but talk about this one, and I love the Gettysburg Leadership Lessons. Wow. Yeah, well, we basically start out by... Saving, if you will, sort of pre-premises. And premises one, number one, is that leadership concepts and principles are enduring across history and across organizations. So the principles that apply to a guy commanding in the Roman times or a business guy during the Revolutionary War or somebody during the 19th century in the Industrial Age or the 21st century running a nonprofit, a radio station, or a baseball team, those leadership concepts and principles are enduring. Technology changes, culture changes a little bit, but those leadership concepts and principles are enduring. Secondly, it's our belief in thinking about those things, tying those concepts to a story that illustrates that principle gives it a certain intellectual stickiness. I could give people a lecture about leadership concepts and bore them to tears. But if I combine that with a story, it has kind of an intellectual stickiness in the human brain where they tie story and principle. And then finally, if we got a group of you know people on the radio right now and we went to any organization, not-for-profit, government organization, corporation, it wouldn't matter, and we were allowed to wander around, we could probably make some pretty intelligent comments about how well or how poorly it was run. But if we were there on the day when the organization was in a crisis, well, then good leadership and bad leadership just kind of sticks out in bold relief. And in essence, what is a battle? Well, a battle is two organizations in a crisis. That's what it really is. So it's a useful vehicle then to look at those concepts and principles like emotional intelligence, effective communication, strategic vision, the role of technology, all those things that make organizations successful or failures. And that's certainly illustrated at Gettysburg. From just a couple of days ago on our regular program, our thanks to retired Army Colonel Jeff McCausland, CBS News military analyst. Great to talk about his new book as well. Again, battle-tested. Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for 21st Century Leaders. Thank you, Colonel, and we will certainly talk with you on this program and our regular one as the days, weeks, and months move forward. We've got our final segment coming up, and we're going to talk from uh, a 60 Minutes perspective on the safety of Humvees and military vehicles. And keep in mind, be listening for one nugget. What is the percentage of new recruits that go into the United States military with a driver's license. It may stun you like it stunned us. We'll have a little bit from that CBS 60 Minutes report as we conclude the American Veteran Show next, AmericanVeteranShow.com. This is the American Veteran Show, online at AmericanVeteranShow.com. Here's Stephan Tubbs. We wrap up this week's program, and just a reminder, of course, next week we will have the very latest on what transpires in the coming days when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, NATO, and, of course, the United States. And uh, starting tomorrow on our regular program at 3.03 on 710 KNUS, we'll obviously bring you the latest. We wrap this program up today, not on, say, a high note, but at least some information that we found fascinating. 
Recently, CBS and 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl took a look at a GAO report talking about Humvees that have been involved in so many accidents. Not just Humvees, though, other military vehicles. We pick up the story from Leslie Stahl, 60 Minutes from earlier in the month. The GAO concluded there was often improper supervision, that drivers were poorly trained, and vehicles inadequately inspected. Some accidents involved multiple factors, as was the case with Christopher Bobby Nem, a Navy sailor. <laughs> These are screams of joy from Bobby's mom, Nancy, when he surprised her one Christmas. A year and a half later, in the summer of 2020, he and 15 Marines were training off Camp Pendleton in amphibious assault vehicles, or AAVs like these. Giant armored vessels Marines used on both land and sea. His stepdad, Peter Vienna, says the Marines had no business sending out the AAVs used in his son's drill. They're 40 years old um, and they were in terrible condition. And instead of asking for better condition AAVs, which there were, there were plenty of them, they had gotten these, all of them that were in poor condition. So they're sitting in a parking lot on Camp Pendleton, baking in the sun. They're deteriorating. Peter Ostrovsky's son, Jack Ryan, was also on that mission. A week uh, prior to the mission, we were speaking on the telephone, and he made the comment that AAVs sink all the time. They've called them, and he, he called it a floating coffin. Do you think he was worried? Oh, absolutely. Two AAVs broke down and their son's designated vehicle sprang an engine leak. And yet, the mission was not aborted. What was the drive to go forward with faulty equipment? They're trying to keep a schedule, stay on time. The safety of our sons took a second place to completing a training mission. This isn't combat. This isn't got to do it right now. This is training. There should have been an all-stop at many points. But 16 young men crowded into the AAV as seen in this video that one of the Marines sent his dad. It almost immediately started taking on water, ankle level, calf level, seat level, as one by one the AAV systems were failing. The communication system was down. They were in the dark using their, their the lights on their cell phones to try to see. Wait, 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 the lights didn't work? The safety lighting that's supposed to function didn't function. Were there lifeboats? No, so there's supposed to be two safety boats in the water. They, they, put, they went with none. This is the AAV at the bottom of the ocean, an underwater video we obtained through a Freedom of Information request. Seven men made it out alive. Nine did not. Turns out most had received little or no safety training on how to escape. It doesn't make sense. There's so much of it that doesn't make sense. They were taken on water for 45 minutes, yet they were still found at the bottom of the ocean with um, all their, their gear still on, their body armor. And that, sh they should not have, th that should have come off. They didn't know what to do. They were all looking at each other like, what does this mean? What do we do? You know, the, the, the Marine Corps did its own investigation, and the Marine Corps concluded that this, and I'm going to use the direct quote, was preventable. The top-down incompetence, uh, the lack of readiness, 
really the lack of duty of care for our sons. It was, it was shocking. Can you sue the military or the commanders for what happened? There's the Ferris Doctrine um, makes that impossible. The biggest thing for me is these boys were not protected. I have this vision in my head, nightmares of the AAV going down. What was his last word? Okay. We were invited by Ricardo Defense, a small military contractor, to suit up for a demo of how unstable these vehicles can be while making turns. All right, let's go. We were going less than 30 miles an hour. The two yellow bars were there to prevent us from actually tipping over. Oh, oh, oh. oh my God. Most Humvees do not have anti-lock brakes or electronic stability control that prevent rollovers. But eight years ago, Ricardo developed them for the Humvee. Ricardo's president, Chet Grison. Let's uh, do the same thing with the system on, please. Right, here it comes. With the system on, all wheels remain firmly on the ground. My goodness gracious. The system works so well, it's now mandatory in all new Humvees. But what about Humvees already in use? Well, Ricardo came up with a safety kit that could be installed for about $16,000 per vehicle in about 54,000 of the older Humvees. You could make 10 or more old vehicles safer for the price of one new vehicle. And yet, the Department of Defense is asking for a lot of money for new Humvees, but only a fraction of what's needed to retrofit old ones. If the budget were to be approved today, as mm -hmm. the numbers stand, we would have enough funding for uh, about 545 vehicles. 545 vehicles out of 54,000? That's it? That's it, yeah. And so that's about 1% of the fleet. At that rate, it'll take 100 years to get the fleet fit. A recent letter to the Pentagon from several congressmen endorses your kit. They calculated that the difference in cost between putting your kit on and building a new vehicle is about $13 billion. It sounds like a no-brainer. Yeah, why, why wouldn't you do it? Chair of the Armed Services Subcommittee on Readiness, Congressman John Garamendi, told us that Congress and the Pentagon's preference for new over upgrades is often predicated on keeping defense contractors fed. The Army told us there were fewer vehicle deaths last year, saying most are caused by human error and inexperience. Nearly one in five enlistees joined the Army with no driver's license. The Pentagon and Marines declined our interview requests though the new defense budget mandates several new safety provisions, and AAVs will no longer be used in water drills. But there are more steps the military could take that they haven't, involving relatively inexpensive upgrades to the vehicle involved in most accidents, the Humvee. This test footage by IMI, a safety system supplier, shows what can happen inside a Humvee in a rollover. But watch, drivers could have a better chance when Humvees are retrofitted with IMI's restraints and airbags. 
Leslie Stahl from a recent CBS 60 Minutes. I can tell you from my embed time in Iraq many years ago, two different occasions and on occasion here in the States, I've been in these Humvees just for a blip of time compared to our veterans in active duty, obviously. But uh, let's just say, may these safety improvements be implemented. That wraps up the program for this week. Join us tomorrow on the regular show, 3 to 7 Mountain Time. We'll have the latest on Ukraine. And may God help us all and cooler heads prevail. For producer Matt Steinkruger, I'm Stefan Tubbs. Have a terrific week. We'll talk to you next and Remember Our Troops. We obviously cannot predict the future. We don't know exactly what is going to happen. But the risk is now high enough and the threat is now immediate enough that this is what prudence demands. If you stay, you are assuming risk with no guarantee that there will be any other opportunity to leave. The American Veteran Show is a copyrighted production of Mountain Time Media Group, LLC. All rights reserved. For more information, visit AmericanVeteranShow.com. Looking for a fun way to win up to 25 times your money this football season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of statistics, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and an enormous selection of players and stat options are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million football fans who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/get100 and use code GET100. That's code GET100 at prizepicks.com slash get100 for a first deposit matchup to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy.